0: Early in Mark's Gospel, we see four incidents where Jesus is operating outside the box. Uh, He just didn't conform to the prevailing expectations of the people, and especially the religious establishment, of what they held regarding the manner in which Messiah should relate and conform. And so controversy now is growing around this man who's preaching about the kingdom of God. The first incidents we looked at last week in Jesus' ministry was the calling of Matthew to discipleship. Here, here was a despised tax collector, and Jesus called him to come and to be his disciple. Certainly, this wasn't the type of fellow the Pharisees would consider disciple material for any rabbi. The second incident we also looked at was Jesus' association with known sinners. You know, surely this man couldn't be from God, they reasoned, because if he was, he wouldn't be associated with this kind of folk. He would be with us. He would be in our circle of friends. The third incident, we look at it this morning, occurs on a Sabbath day. So let's go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, and let's set the scene for what's happening. Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. The first thing you ask yourself is, well, what's the big deal? What, what are these guys doing that are so wrong? Well, the Pharisees are like some kind of religious police. And they're bent out of shape because the disciples, they believe, are breaking the rules. And they are the enforcers of the right. Well, what rules? Well, we have to remember that rules and regulations here had been growing up around those days on what was proper, what was okay on the Sabbath. By this time, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel had established a 1,001 restrictions and rules related to the Sabbath. What was permissible and what was not. Now, their initial motive was very honorable. And that was to hallow the Sabbath day in accord with God setting it aside as a day of rest. But by Jesus' day, however, the original purpose had been obscured and lost through the evolution of rules and, and all of these regulations that governed what defined work. Just let me illustrate. Um, it was acceptable, I know some of you will be happy to know this, it was acceptable to spit on a rock on the Sabbath. But you couldn't spit on the ground. Why? Well, because if you spit on the ground, you form mud. And mud forms mortar, and, and mortar that's used in bricklaying. And so if you spit on the ground and make mortar, you're working on the Sabbath. You, you, you couldn't wear sandals that were riveted with iron rivets because it constituted work in having to raise your foot up off the ground. Another one that will come into play in the next incident is a physician could not improve the condition of a patient on the Sabbath because that defined work. So let's go back to our story at hand. When the, what the disciples really were doing was not against Jewish law. Indeed, the law allowed for anyone, especially a poor person, the right to pick grain in a neighbor's field as long as you did not use a sickle. But the Pharisees had developed this rule that that classified even picking grain on the Sabbath as harvesting, and harvesting was work, and you couldn't work on the Sabbath. What's the real issue here? I think it's a couple things. I I think, first, it's a matter of control. And second, it's a matter of self-righteousness. First, through keeping these rules, they thought they were honoring God and thus establishing a righteousness through adherence to these rules that had been developed. In reality, theirs was a self-righteousness. Second, by insisting that others keep these rules that they were committed to, it's a way of controlling them. It's really a way of manipulating them, if you will, Uh, It's a way in which they could build themselves up while they tore others down, these others who were either not able to or unwilling to keep these rules. And that's why I think Jesus comes down so hard on them for these outward acts of righteousness that were devoid of the inward act of righteousness. In other words, it was just sheer hypocrisy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned against this kind of behavior. Just turn back one book in Matthew to chapter 6. Jesus addresses it over here. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Drop down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Now, in in Mark's gospel, Jesus draws an example out of Jewish life and history to establish a precedent for what the disciples were doing. The story comes out of the book of 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David, who's on the run for his life from King Saul, who's seeking to kill him, goes to the city of Nob, to the priest of Ahimelech, and asks for something to eat for himself and for those who were with him. The priest says that there's nothing available except the consecrated bread, bread that was only to be eaten by the priests. These 12 loaves of bread were replaced every day with fresh loaves. You know what? God didn't condemn David for what he did. There's two important things, I think, there. First, David was hungry and needed to eat, nothing to eat that he had. And so he was not condemned for doing what he did. Second, David wasn't just any man. Even though he's not yet installed as king, he's already been anointed as king. And God says that that's okay for what he was doing. His line would produce the Messiah. So in a sense, Jesus' appeal here to the Pharisees is that if God did not condemn the future King David from satisfying his legitimate need, why then should they condemn him and his disciples for doing what David did? Indeed, you could make a greater argument here because the king was in their midst. This is the king proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And then Jesus restates the purpose behind the commandment regarding the Sabbath. Look in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. To these Pharisees, he says, the Sabbath was given for men's benefit and not the other way around. Now, is Jesus abolishing the observance of the Sabbath? No. But he redirects their focus from the day of the Sabbath to the Lord of the Sabbath. And in doing so, he establishes his supremacy even over the Sabbath. Simply put, it's this. Jesus is Lord over all. The Son of Man is the one who defines what is right and wrong on the Sabbath, what is lawful or what is not, what is permitted and what is not. You know, this must have really stuck in the craw of the Pharisees. You know, their method of control and superiority was being undermined and challenged by this itinerant teacher. You know, they developed their rules and they sat in judgment on any who dared break these rules. We always face the risk of establishing our rules and, and, or taking what we understand to be rules and expanding on them and overlaying them onto others with the result that we sit in judgment upon them if they don't follow our rules. Ray Steadman writes, when people become overly zealous in enforcing rules and regulation, they usually invalidate the purpose of those rules and regulations. And this is when rules become enslaving. I think we need to distinguish between the normal, valid, and appropriate place of rules and when those rules become the problem. When those rules enslave and detract from the spirit and purpose of the rules. Now, let me throw another caution out at you. Like last week, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. Policies, procedures, properly applied, liberate. They don't enslave. We as parents need to know that about our children. When you've got young children at home, rules liberate. You know where the boundaries are. But it's when our policies and procedures and rules are used to control others when they're used to legalistically suppress people or to elevate ourselves over them because we obey them and they don't, that's when they become wrong. That's when they need to be challenged. This danger is particularly acute when it involves spiritual matters. The 17th century French scientist, philosopher Pascal wrote, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. We see it today, don't we? But Jesus calls us to be grace givers, to trust others with the freedom to live their lives and follow after Christ in their own convictions, guided by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, not to sit in judgment upon them based on whether they or not they follow and conform to our rules and standards. Uh, Paul warned the Galatians about this same thing. He begins by reminding them, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And because Paul was well aware of the tendency to establish and enforce religious legalism, after all, he was a Pharisee. He'd experienced this. He goes on to say, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another, serve one another. The final incident that Mark puts forth here to show you know, what's going on with these Pharisees and, and, and what's wrong with it, um, is now they're gonna be lying in, in wait to ambush Jesus. I don't think they have to wait long. Uh, look at Mark chapter 3, verse one. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, that is, I think to these Pharisees around him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately had counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Every eye is on Jesus. It's a tension-filled situation. You know, it's the gunfighter walking into the saloon. Everyone stops drinking, they stop talking, they stop eating, they stop card playing, and every eye is on the stranger. Now, you've got to admire the courage of Jesus. And to be honest, his strategy. He traps them with the flaw of their own reasoning. And so he asks this simple question, what is the value of life? What's the value of life? That is, which is more important, to do good or harm, to kill or to make alive? Now, the question within the question is, are there only certain days in which one should do good? And to that, they had no answer. Did you notice what's going on with Jesus? He's experiencing two powerful emotions, anger and grief. Anger at at their self-righteousness and grief at the hardness of their heart. And so Jesus speaks the word of healing. Stretch out your hand. The man does it and immediately he's healed. Now listen, Jesus did nothing to break any commandment on the Sabbath. He didn't prepare an ointment or a potion. He, He didn't lift anything. He simply spoke the word and the man was healed. And the Pharisees are incensed. And they immediately go out and they plan their revenge against Jesus. And in their action, they betray their lack of understanding about the intent of the law. David Garland writes, In their stubborn resistance, it does not dawn on them that if his words are not in accordance with God's will, the man would not have been healed, since it is God who forgives sins and affects healing. These critics are so blindly cynical that they're incensed when Jesus does good and saves a life on a holy day, but they have no qualms about doing harm and plotting death on that very same day with the secular powers that be. Jesus affirms that the Sabbath is for doing good. It's not just a time of rest, it's a time for serving others, for helping others, for doing good to others. Garland puts it this way, to do evil is always prohibited, regardless of the day of the week. To do good is always required, regardless of the day of the week. But once again, Jesus failed in the expectations of the Pharisees. But not lest we be too hard on them. Let's think about this. How do you handle situations where God doesn't do something the way you think he ought to do it? or in the time that you think he ought to do it on the same schedule. There are many Christians who do not follow hard after God because they once faced a circumstance, called on God, and God didn't come through. He didn't do it the way they wanted it, didn't do it when they wanted it. And so because of that, two things result, disappointment with God, and often a resulting confidence in self. Well, Jesus is now on the hit list of the Pharisees. There's a big red bullseye on his chest. And the Pharisees begin to plot with the Herodians. These are members of the political party of Herod Antipas, the one who had John the baptizer beheaded. So these four incidents that Mark brings to us early in his gospel account, Jesus establishing the precedence upon which he will carry on his ministry, and identify Him who He is, the Son of God. Now, wrapping up this morning, we see a shift in Jesus' focus. Um, it's the evolution, if you will, of His ministry strategy. Look in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, starting at verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to Him, called to him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. And He appointed twelve whom He also named as apostles. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the the name Baronus, which is sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Think about how Jesus began his ministry. Uh, It starts with the public unveiling and identification of his identity at the baptism that he experienced in the River Jordan. From right there, he went into the wilderness to face the tempter. He came out of that and he goes into his hometown of Nazareth where he declares his ministry manifesto. They seek to throw him off the cliff, but he walks out in their midst. And and then he goes around preaching the, the, the message of the kingdom, preaching a preparation, a repentance, and preaching that's accompanied by works of miracles. Why? To authenticate him, to authenticate his message. But now he shifts his focus from the crowds to a few men who would be his apostles. Oh, he still engages the crowds, but, but the disciples are always with him, front and center on everything he does. And he uses those opportunities to instruct, to train, and to prepare the 12. And in his calling of the 12, in just this, these few verses in the gospel account, we see a strategy that God even uses today in expanding his kingdom. It's the multiplication of his ministry through the lives of those he saved. So I want you to see several things about this incident here. First is his divine preparation. Luke adds something in his gospel account that we don't see in Mark's, and that's this. In those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. This would not be a casual choice. This is very intentional. This is guided by the direction that he would receive from his father as he waited upon him in prayer. Second is see his divine choice. Jesus, with his father's guidance, chose those whom he wanted In fact, toward the end of his ministry, he would say to these guys, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit shall abide. Then we see his divine insight. Jesus knew who these men were, their backgrounds, their foibles, their weaknesses. You know, he went into this with his eyes opened. I think that's the key. Jesus saw not only the actual, but also the potential. He saw not only who they were, but he saw what they would become. But what a group of guys. Listen, would you have picked them? Is this the way you, you would start out your ministry? This might be how things would have been had Jesus asked a personnel consulting group to evaluate his choices. This is a memo to Jesus, son of Joseph Woodcrafter's carpenter shop, Nazareth, from Jordan Management Consultants, Jerusalem. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests and we've not only run the results through our computer but also arrange personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all the tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service and for your guidance, we make some general comments, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without additional fee. It is a staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable, given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. (laughs) James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. Who in their right mind would pick those guys? But we need the same discernment, don't we? You know, we often focus on the current situation and status of people rather than seeing who they can become as they grow in Christ. Here's something else, his divine intent. Notice that Jesus called them to be with him. He called them to a relationship. And they're now transitioning from followers, oh, there were scores of them, to being disciples. And it calls for a developing knowledge and trust in the one who called him. They're going to spend, you know, depending on exactly how we place the timing, but up to three years with Jesus, living with him, walking with him, eating with him, watching him, listening to him. Jesus called them to share his life and he desires to impart his life to them. But you know what, it's no different today. That's what Jesus calls us to. He wants to share his life with us. He wants us to know his life, not just a follower, a disciple. And so I asked you this morning, where are you in this process? Are you just a follower or are you a committed disciple? It's really a difference in those two things. Jesus wanted these people to experience him, his life. And that's his invitation to us today. And then the divine commission. Jesus called them to multiply his ministry. He would work through them. And so he sends them out to preach. He gives them authority to cast out demons. Why does he do that? I think it's for the same reason that Jesus did his miracles. It was to authenticate the message and the messenger. Again, we see this similar strategy today. We're gonna talk about this in in a few weeks when we think about boot camp. Um, Paul understood this strategy. When he writes to Timothy and explains it this way, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's the strategy of multiplication. Jesus saw the needs of the multitude and he saw the strategic need of multiplying his ministry. You know, from a human perspective, Jesus put all his eggs in one basket. He chooses to start this entire multiplication ministry with a group of 12 that would eventually really be 11 and then they would add a 12 after Jesus' resurrection. But the church would be founded chiefly upon these guys. They would be at the forefront of his ministry throughout the world. They would be the ones about whom it was said in the book of Acts, these folks have turned the world upside down. But the strategy of Jesus is the same today. He, He delights in manifesting his life through us, drawing others to his saving power, using us as his hands and feet to minister to the needs of others. That's what God's calling you and me to as a believer. That's what he's calling Knollwood as a church. So as we seek to be his disciples, he will continue to build his church in and through us to expand his kingdom through our lives and through our service. Would you pray with me? God, such a, such a challenging thought that you have chosen to minister through us by your Holy Spirit who dwells within us to be your voice, to be your hands, to be your feet. And you want to build your kingdom through your church, the people who have been entrusted with your grace. And so help us, God, as we think through our own lives to evaluate whether we are simply a follower or whether we have chosen to become a disciple and desire to go deeper in a walk with you. Lord, would you call us then to those means by which we do that time with you, time in your word, time with other Christians. Would you do your work through us as the people of Noel In Christ's name I pray. Amen.